This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come and speak with us. Open our minds and our hearts, open our lives, that we may hear and understand and respond to your word so that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. At a traditional Jewish Passover meal, the youngest able child present asks a series of questions which begin with the Hebrew words, ma nishtana, that is, why is this night different? At the Passover, the bread is unleavened, the herbs are bitter, the vegetables are dipped in salt water, and the meal is eaten reclining. Why? asks the child. The answers explain the Jewish story of redemption from slavery in Egypt. The bread is unleavened because the people of Israel did not have time to wait for it to leaven. The herbs are bitter because of the suffering. The salt water represented their tears and they eat reclining because slaves eat standing up and they are no longer slaves. It's not clear how much of the later rabbinic Seder meal Jesus and his disciples would have observed at the Last Supper in the upper room on the night before Jesus died. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, the epistle which we just heard, and the Gospel writers give us some of Jesus' words and some of Jesus' actions on that night in the upper room, but a lot of detail is left out. But like the youngest child at the Seder, it would be good for us to consider the question, why is this night different from all other nights? Why are we here tonight, either in person or watching online? Actually, in truth, this is a very intimidating night on which to preach. Preachers have the task of helping people to focus and take an idea home with them. But so much went on on the Thursday night before Jesus went to the cross. Maundy Thursday is like an action movie. There is so much stuff. Let me just give you an abbreviated list of the night's events. Jesus and his disciples, I think not 12, but 120 of them. That's how many were in the upper room during the day of Pentecost, but that's a longer story. You can ask me about it later. Jesus and his disciples gather in the upper room and they celebrate a Passover meal. Before the meal, Jesus takes off his outer robe, puts on a towel, washes the disciples' feet a controversial action to which Peter objects. 
At the meal, Jesus presides over and interprets the story of the Exodus in terms of his own death. This is my body. This is my blood. At some point in the meal, Jesus talks about being betrayed. A few minutes later, Judas leaves, and John, the gospel writer, says, and it was night. Yes, indeed, the darkness is descending. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, then teaches the remaining disciples about the Holy Spirit, about his going away, that he teaches them that they need to abide in him. He teaches them about persecution. How much of that they understood, I have no idea. And he also taught them what he calls a new commandment. We'll come back to that. Then they go out after Jesus has prayed for himself and the disciples and for us. They go out, uh, out, out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to an olive garden on the Mount of Olives. They sing on the way, Mark tells us. The only reference in the Bible to Jesus singing. I'm glad we got one. They go to Gethsemane where Jesus prays and the disciples snooze. He weeps, they sleep. A mob arrives with weapons to arrest Jesus. Judas identifies who Jesus is. They grab him. Impetuous Peter takes a a blade and slices off the ear of a slave who is part of the mob. Jesus not only stops this violence, but heals the man whose name, John's Gospel tells us, is Malchus. The disciples run away. Jesus is taken back to Jerusalem, where he is put on trial. It's all very illegal, by the way. While simultaneously, Peter is denying even knowing Jesus just a few feet away away in the courtyard of Caiaphas. At the climax of the trial, Jesus is mocked and beaten not by the guards. That happens later. He is mocked and beaten by the Sanhedrin themselves, the religious leaders. So why is this night different from other nights? Let me count the ways, Shakespeare might have said. But it's different because on this night, two things are happening at the same time. First, darkness is descending. Evil appears to have triumphed. Denial, betrayal, greed, lies, violence are all building to a crescendo. But, but, at the same time, and even in and through these evil events, God is working. God is not absent in the midst of the darkness. God is using the most hideous instruments of human depravity to bring about the most glorious liberation that could be imagined. Through these dark events, God will bring light. Through these actions of evil and death, 
God will bring life. Through this sorrow, God will bring joy. And both of these things are happening concurrently. But we must always ask this question, what does this mean for us? I don't have enough time. None of us have enough time to unpack everything this means for us. But let me just highlight two things. Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. We call this night Monday Thursday. Monday uh, is from a Latin word, uh, mandatum, which means commandment. We get the English word mandate from this root. We call this night by this name because on this night, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, some of you astute listeners and Bible readers may think, wait a minute, the command to love is not new. The book of Leviticus tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that was a long time before Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the upper room. True. But Jesus defines love in a certain way. Love one another as I have loved you, in the same way that I have loved you. Well, how is that? How did Jesus love? The events of this night give us some clues. In John 15, verse 13, in the midst of this long speech Jesus is giving to his disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The greatest love, Jesus says, is love which is sacrificial, which is self-giving. Paul, in one of his letters, puts it this way. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He then goes on to describe Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. Think like this, which is yours. This kind of thinking is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The greatest love, Jesus tells his disciples, is self-giving, sacrificial love, the kind of love he is going to demonstrate the next day on the cross. But Jesus doesn't just teach this love in a speech. He demonstrates it. In the garden, when he is being arrested, he does not resist. He does not fight back. 
In fact, he stops his disciples from engaging in violence. And because one of the violent mob who has come to seize him becomes a victim of violence himself, Jesus, characteristically, of course, heals the man. And notice what John says. His name is Malchus. How does John know this? In the midst of all the chaos going on in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, how does John know that that guy's name was Malchus? Were there reporters there? Did people have their cell phones out? Most probably we know his name because he was not only healed, but eventually saved and baptized and incorporated into the church. Jesus loved so much that he healed a man of violence who had come to arrest him. But Jesus doesn't just teach about love and doesn't just demonstrate it. He gives us ways to remember, ways to incorporate his love into our lives. He gives us two actions. Twice on this Thursday night, Jesus basically says, do this. Well, the action we most associate with this night, perhaps, is the meal that he gives the disciples. He gives them bread and says, this is my body. He gives them wine and says, this is my blood. They must have been confused at that point. But on Friday, when his body is nailed to a cross and he is there bleeding for hours in the sun, the meaning of the meal must have become painfully obvious. This is what love looks like. A man giving up his life for his friends. But it is more than that. It is God giving himself up for us. It is God himself suffering and dying, not for his friends, but for his enemies. This is why Paul is upset with the Corinthians, by the way. In the epistle reading we read this evening, where he tells them that it's not the Lord's Supper they're eating when they're meeting together. Because the rich are ignoring the poor. They're eating all the food before the poor get there. They're drinking all the wine and getting drunk. This is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. This is not a love feast that you are having. And as he's had to do all through that first letter to the Corinthians, he has to get them to change direction, to think about one another, to discern the body, to wait for one another. But Jesus didn't just give them this meal, this sacramental symbolic action. He gave them another one. He washed dirty, dusty, dung-covered feet. And then he told them what to do about that. In John 13, verses 12 and 13, he says, 
When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Do this. Yes, take the bread, take the wine, do this. Take the towel, take the water. Do this to one another. A few years ago in Western Ethiopia, there was terrible violence between two ethnic groups in the town where my wife and I were living. The Anuak and the Nuer have always lived a kind of uneasy coexistence and violence erupts intermittently and it can be terrible when it happens. We lived through several weeks of hearing bullets, hearing reports of bombings in the local college, hearing about people using machetes on one another, people threatening violence and actually enacting violence. The largest Protestant church in the area is called the Makana Jesus, which means the dwelling place of Jesus. The Makana Jesus has two synods in Gambela. They call one east and one west, but they're, they're only a short distance from one another. In reality, one is Nuer and one is Anuak. They're ethnically based synods. But the leaders of these synods looked at the violence going on in their town and their region, and they said, the church needs to do something. So they organized a march through the town. They, all the people gathered in, in the compound of one synod, and they walked through the town in, until they got to the compound of the other synod. And when they got there, the presidents of each synod washed each other's feet. And the violence stopped. The Anglicans caught on. The Mother's Union started doing the same thing. The New Air women traveling to the Anuak area and the Anuak going to the New Air area and worshiping together and singing as they walked. And then the youth did the same thing. It hasn't transformed the society there completely. But it was a powerful sign that Jesus calls us to something else. And Jesus can transform us. Jesus has transformed lives of some new heir and Anuak who now could love one another. Do this. Wash one another's feet. In 1967, I bought my first record album, Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. On that record, there is a song which kind of became an anthem. You probably know most of the words. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. All you need is love. Everybody. Right? You, you. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. They were right, you know. They didn't understand what the word meant. They were a little confused. 
but they were right. In fact, the Beatles and the rest of the flower children could not have talked about peace and love at all if it hadn't been for 2,000 years of Christian teaching seeping into Western society. Yeah, they messed up. But they looked around and they saw a world that was messed up, a world that needed to, in the words of another one of their songs, give peace a chance. The very idea of peace and love was a biblical idea. The problem, though, that the 60s had is that the idea was separated from the story. The idea of love, the idea of peace, still had this deep attraction to people. People knew it was so necessary but they didn't know the story that shows us what underlies that ethic. A story of God giving himself up in love for us. A God loving us so much that he laid down his life for his enemies. Love is not something we can manufacture. We proved that in the 1960s. You can't drum it up and make it happen. It's not an emotion or a feeling. No, the first epistle of John says this. God is love. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us the Apostle Paul says. So why is this night different from all other nights? Because on this night, the story of the love of God that we see all through the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, comes to a climax as Jesus, the Son of God, gives his life into the hands of sinners. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you our pitifully small thanks and praise that you care for us so much. That you came and lived and died and rose again for us. And that you call us to be your hands and feet of love in the world. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that the whole world will know that we are Christians 
only by our love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.